0: Amen. I don't know about you, but that song gets me fired up for Jesus. Alright, you can be seated. Are you ready to dive into God's Word today? If you're, if you're a little bit hungry for God's Word, just raise your hand right now. If you didn't raise your hand, I assume that's because you're a lot a bit hungry for God's Word today. Amen? Alright, that's what we're talking about. It is such an honor and privilege to do what many around the world would be arrested for doing holding God's Word in our hands and opening it up and seeing what the Lord has for us today. And so I encourage you to have a Bible in hand as we dive into His Word in just a few moments. We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 11, starting in verse 17. If you didn't bring a Bible with you this week, I encourage you to bring it with you next time. And you can grab one of those blue Bibles from the rack in front of you if you didn't bring a Bible today. And if you're using one of those blue Bibles, you'll find Hebrews 11 on page 1192, page 1192, one of those blue Bibles. And one more thing, if you're sitting near an aisle, there's a stack of those message notes. If you could grab that stack and pass that down to those in your row, uh, that way they'll be able to see some of the main points from the message today and be able to fill in some blanks and jot down some notes along the way. So as you're turning to Hebrews 11, I wanted to share with you a story. I can't guarantee that this story is true, but I have a hunch that it is. Uh, there was a certain young man who was enrolled in a larger university, and he was taking a class on ornithology. Ornithology is the study of birds. And so it got to the end of the semester. It was time for the final exam of that semester. And he studied for weeks for this final exam. And he went into that classroom on the day of the final thinking he knew everything about birds. But as he walks into the classroom and takes his seat with about a 100 other students, he notices on the front wall... There are 25 photographs of birds' feet. The professor steps up at the start of class and says, take out a blank sheet of paper. Your final exam is to identify all 25 birds by their feet. This kid was ticked. He'd studied for weeks, but he knew nothing about birds' feet. And so he storms up to the front of the classroom and he says, Professor, this is the stupidest final exam I've ever been given. This is ridiculous, and I'm not going to take the final exam. It's not fair. The professor said, well, be that the case or not, this is your final exam, and yes, you will take it. young man said, no, I'm not. I'm not going to take this final exam. I won't do it. It's not fair. The professor said, well, if you don't take this final exam, you will fail this course. kid said, I don't care. I'll fail the course. I am not taking this test. The professor said, fine, you failed the course then. What's your name? The kid stood there for a second. He kicks off his shoes, pulls his socks off, takes his pant legs, hikes them up above his knees and stands there in front of the class. Professor says, young man, you're wasting my time. What is your name? He glanced down at his own bare legs and said, professor, you tell me. How many of you have ever been given a test that you did not think was fair? Come on. Ever been given a test you didn't think was fair? Maybe it was in high school, you were given that algebra test, and there were questions on there requiring you to know formulas that you were never taught in class and weren't in the chapter you were supposed to be tested on. Some of us have been treated unfairly when we went to our favorite government organization, the DMV. You heard about, you heard about this uh, wonderful, happiest place on earth, the DMV? You've gone in there and you studied that book so you could take your permit test or your driver's test and the questions were not in that book that they asked you on that test. And you thought to yourself, that's not fair. Some of you ladies have taken a pregnancy test. And after taking that pregnancy test, you had some words with God because the results were not what you wanted and all your other friends had gotten different results and it's not fair that you got the results that you did. We've all, I think, had times... When we've taken a test, it didn't seem fair. And so, today we're going to continue our look at one of the greatest heroes of our faith from the Old Testament. We took a look last week at Abraham. We're going to take a second look at Abraham together over the next few minutes. We're in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17. Specifically, we're going to take a look at tests that God sometimes gives us on our road of faith that we walk as Christians, as believers and followers of Jesus Christ. Sometimes God gives us tests. And oftentimes, we do not think that these tests are fair. So we're in Hebrews 11, starting in verse 17. If you're there, please say amen. Amen. Here we are, starting in verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had received the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead, and figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. May God bless us as we study his word today. Could you pray with me, please? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day we have to study your word. It truly is an honor, it truly is a privilege to open your word and study it in this place together. Lord, This subject that we're going to touch on today, tests as we follow you, is so important, Lord, for us to understand. Help us to internalize what you teach us about testing today. And I pray, O God, that when you give us tests, we, like Abraham, would rise to the occasion and pass those tests with flying colors. Not because we're all that great, but because you're great. You are a great and awesome God, and we want to please you and honor you and glorify your name here on this earth. In Jesus' name, amen. I'd like you to turn back in your Bibles, please, to Genesis chapter 22. I want you to see the, the very first time this test of Abraham is talked about in Scripture. It's there in the very first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 22. And it's a great passage. Last week, we flipped back to Genesis chapter 12. Uh, which is where God had first called to Abraham. Abraham was living in that land of Uz, which was not too far from modern-day Baghdad, Iraq. Uh, That land of Uz was in modern-day Iraq. And God had come to him, seemingly out of nowhere, and said, Abraham, I want you to leave. I want you to leave your country. I want you to leave your family and friends, and I want you to leave your father's household and go to a place that I will show you. And so we saw last week that Abraham obediently went and did exactly what God had called him to do. There in Genesis 12, that was the first time that God spoke to Abraham. Here as we look at Genesis 22 today, this will be the seventh time that God spoke to Abraham. Interestingly, this is the last time that we have a recorded conversation in the Bible of God speaking to Abraham. So the passage we looked at last week in Genesis 12, that was the first time. This now is the final time, which was time number seven. So as we look at Genesis 12 through 22, there's seven different conversations God has with Abraham. The passage last week was kind of the first bookend. The passage today is kind of the last bookend. And so these bookends on God's conversations with Abraham, interestingly, have some similarities between them. As we look at Genesis 22 here in a moment, I think you'll see an expanded version of what we just read in Hebrews chapter 11. And it's a great passage talking about a man whose great faith allowed him to walk in obedience even when God's command to him didn't make any sense. Starting verse 1 of Genesis 22, it says, Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, And go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering as on one of the mountains I will tell you about. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and he saddled his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and he saw the place in the distance. And he said to his servants, stay here with the donkey. Here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld him, your only son, from me. Abraham looked up and, he, and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and he took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place Yahweh Yireh, more commonly pronounced uh, will take possession of the cities of their enemies, and through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. Hmm. What an amazing passage that is. Last Sunday, we spent a few minutes discussing God's command to Abraham there in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. And during that very first of seven conversations with Abraham, there in Genesis 12, God gave Abraham, remember, one command with three objects. Remember there in Genesis 12, verse 1, is one command. you remember what it was? He was living in us. He wanted him to move a thousand miles to the west. And God's one word command was go. Go. Three objects. He said go from your country, number one. Go from your family and friends, that was number two. And go, number three, was from your father's household. One command, three objects. Interestingly, if you look at Genesis chapter 22, verses 1 and 2 here, God has the same type of structure to his command. A single one-word command with three objects. This time his command is not go, his command is sacrifice. Number one, your son. Number two, your only son. Number three, Isaac whom you love one command three objects and so as these conversations are bookends to his seven conversations with Abraham here in Genesis 12 through 22 i think it's interesting to see these similarities between these two bookends and one other similarity remember in Genesis 12 when he said go to the land i will show you when he gave him that command he wasn't even giving him the specific destination where he was going he just said basically head west young man He was 75, but he lived to be 175, so I guess he was kind of young. And here God gives him this command, I want you to sacrifice your one and only son Isaac, whom you love, in a place I will tell you about, somewhere around Moriah. So once again, God gives him a command, but does not give him the specifics. Isn't that interesting? Did you know sometimes God gives commands and gives precious little detail with those commands? He tells you or me to do something, but is really kind of sketchy on the details. Ever had that happen? God does it all the time. He does it all the time. Abraham had to walk in faith without knowing exactly where he was going. Abraham was living out that great definition of faith that we've been looking at over the last few Sundays. True Bible faith is confident obedience to God in spite of the circumstances and in spite of the consequences. It's not true Bible faith unless it's confident obedience to God in spite of the circumstances and consequences. But there's one big difference between God's command to Abraham there in Genesis 12 when he said, go to the land I will show you, and his command to Abraham here in Genesis 22 where he says, sacrifice your one and only son who you love. You know what the big difference is? It makes it clear here in Genesis chapter 22, verse 1, that this was a test. That was reiterated in Hebrews chapter 11, that first passage we looked at a few minutes ago. In both cases, it says this was a test. The command of God in Genesis 12 was not called a test. And that makes sense because Abraham was being called by God for the very first time. He was brand new to his faith. God calls him to follow him, much like Jesus had gone to Peter and James and John and said, Leave those fishing nets here and come follow me and I will make you fishers of men. That was an initial command to Abraham in Genesis 12 to go. Here he has been following God for some 50 years. And along the way during those 50 years, God had given him some smaller tests. And here God gives him the pinnacle, the the climax to his tests of faith. This is the greatest test that Abraham had ever received. And it was the greatest test that he ever would receive. God says simply, I want you to sacrifice your one and only son, take him to a mountain I'll tell you about when you get there and sacrifice your son. Now, we need to address the elephant in the room. God is said in 1 John 3 to be love. It says simply, God is love. Say that with me. God is love. Say it like you mean it. God is love. And so we are to believe that the God of love went to one of his men of faith, one of his followers, Abraham, and told him to sacrifice, let me stop sugarcoating it, told him to murder, to butcher his son Isaac on a stack of wood as a sacrifice. Now the elephant in the room is this, that sounds absolutely nuts. Sounds crazy, doesn't it? If he is a loving God, how on earth could a loving God ask a man to do something that that was that cruel? That was that mean? That was so, I dare say, sadistic? Telling him to butcher his own son. It sounds nuts. And what preachers oftentimes you expect to do at a time like this is to reassure you with a beautifully worded explanation Of why it wasn't nuts. I can't do that. Because to me it sounds nuts too. It sounds cruel. It sounds warped. It sounds sadistic. But you know what? Abraham had to take in faith. That even though this command of God seemed nuts. And didn't make any sense. He had to take in faith that God knew what he was doing. And we have that same charge to take in faith that God knew what He was doing. Even if it doesn't make sense to us. I like how Warren Wiersbe explains the school of faith that every Christian is enrolled in. Wiersbe writes, At the age of 75, Abraham enrolled in the school of faith. That was there in Genesis 12. Now, in Genesis 22, he was over 100. And he was still having soul-stretching experiences... We are never too old to face new challenges. Seniors, can you say amen to that? We are never too old to fight new battles. Seniors, can I get an amen to that? We are never too old to learn new truths. Seniors, can I get an amen to that? In the school of faith, we must have occasional tests or we will never know where we are spiritually. I like to say it this way. In the school of faith, we have to have periodic tests to know what we are truly made of. Our faith has to be put to the test. So let me be very clear with you this morning. If you are following Jesus Christ as your Savior and your Lord, sooner or later, God will put your faith to the test. He will put you in a situation that doesn't seem fair. He will put you in a circumstance that doesn't make sense. He will put you in a situation where it's really, really, really hard to obey Him. And you won't understand why you're there or what God's up to, but He'll put you there anyway. God will put you through that test of faith, not to break your faith, but to show you how weak or how strong your faith really is so that your faith can grow and become stronger. It's kind of interesting, back years ago when the Union Pacific Railroad was being built across the United States, there were certain canyons that had to be spanned with different bridges of different types and There was one bridge out here in the west that had to span a large canyon. And that bridge was finished, and before it began to be in operation, the designer of that bridge took a line of trains and packed them with cargo so that they would be twice as heavy as any train that would ever go across that bridge. And he took that fully loaded, two times over train, And he had the engineer drive it out to the middle of the bridge. And he had him park it in the middle of the bridge and leave it there for 24 hours. A few hours into this, the builders are starting to sweat a little bit because they're convinced the legs of that bridge are going to buckle. It's not designed for a train this heavy. And one of those builders was brave enough to go up to the engineer that designed the thing. And he said, are you nuts? Are you trying to break this bridge? you know how that builder responded? How that designer responded? No, I'm not trying to break the bridge. I'm trying to prove that the bridge won't break. And That's how it works with God a lot of times. He's not trying to break you when He gives you a test. He's trying to prove that your faith is real and that it won't break when the trials and tests of life come. It's important to understand Whenever we talk about God's testing, that there is a difference between God's testing and Satan's tempting. The Word of God makes it clear in James 1.13 that God will never tempt you. It says, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. So how are we tempted? Well, sometimes we're tempted by our own sinful natures inside of us. We've got these lusts and these desires that churn within us and they pull us into sin. Sometimes we're tempted by other people around us that pull us into sin. Sometimes we're tempted by Satan himself, but we are never tempted by God. God is not a tempter. And so, okay, well, you're saying, Dane, that God tests me. Yes, I am. And you're saying that God doesn't tempt me. Yes, I am. What's the difference between God's testing and Satan's tempting? Oh, I'm so glad you asked. Let me put it on the screen here for you. Satan tempts us to make us weaker. God tests us to make us stronger. Does that make sense? Said another way, Satan tempts us to bring out the worst in us. God tests us to bring out the best in us. Isn't that good? Satan tempts us to make us weaker. God tests us to make us stronger. Satan tempts us to bring out the worst in us. God tests us to bring out the best in us. Now, that's all fine and good, preacher. But I still need to know how I can tell the difference between a temptation and a test. Can I give you a quick way to tell the difference between a temptation and a test? If it's really, really enticing, it's a temptation. In all likelihood. If it's really Unpleasant? It's probably a test. Isn't that reassuring? If the thing is really enticing, it really is attractive, it really seems good. You know, just one peak, it won't hurt. One little bite, it won't be a big deal. That happened in the Garden of Eden. One little bite of that uh, fruit from the forbidden tree, it won't be a big deal. It's so enticing. It looks so good. Yeah, I'm sure it's going to taste so good. If it's really drawing you in, it's a you know, likelihood of temptation. If it's something you say, you know what, I'd rather not, it's probably a test. Because God's tests usually aren't very pleasant. Let me give you a couple quick examples. If God wants to teach you not to covet, remember, do not covet is the tenth of the Ten Commandments. To covet means to really crave something that someone else has. It doesn't belong to you, and you crave for it, it's just, you know, just captivating your thoughts, you can't stop thinking about it and you're thinking about it so much you even have the passing thought to steal it from your friend or your neighbor because you want it that badly. If God wants to teach you not to covet he's going to handle that a lot differently than Satan would tempt you to covet. If Satan wants to tempt you to covet he may have that co-worker park next to you in the parking spot at work every single day in the exact vehicle that you want. That wouldn't be a temptation, or excuse me, it wouldn't be a test from God. If God wants to test you and teach you not to covet, what He may do is take away that clunker you're driving right now to teach you to appreciate it a little bit more. That's not pleasant, is it? He's not going to kind of titillize you with that brand new car that you really are craving, but He may take away the one you already have. See the difference? What about lust? If God is going to teach us not to lust, He is not going to drop the temptation right in front of you. It was not even a mile from here. About ten years ago, I was going on one of my morning jogs, and I'm just jogging down the street, and I see something in the road. And as I get up closer, I bend over to take a look, and I'm like, "Ah!" it's a hustler pornographic magazine. Here I am in the middle of nowhere, running up this street with no cars or people around. What am I going to do with this magazine right here? So I did what any good Christian would do. I picked it up. No, I didn't do that. So there I am with this, with this not just softcore stuff. That's kind of some hard stuff there. And so anyways, I've got this magazine. Okay, do not take a peek. Do not take a peek. Do not take a peek. So I'll have you know I didn't take a peek. But what I did is I started jogging up the street holding this porn magazine. And so I'm thinking, i got to find a trash can to throw this thing away, because what I didn't want to have happen is some kid or teenager walking by, maybe home from school, and they see the Hustler magazine, and they open it up, and they, they're off on some tangent going down a path of pornography. I didn't want that. And so I'm looking for a trash can, so I'm running through the neighborhoods looking for a trash can. And, of course, there's not one close by. And this thought goes through my head, what if one of the elders from our church happens to be driving by? Hey, Pastor Dane, good to see you. What do you got in your hand there? How am I going to explain this one? And so finally I find one of the big green trash cans. I throw it and I close it and I start running off before I change my mind about what to do with that magazine. And I'm off and running down the road. I'll have you know, God did not put that magazine on the street that day knowing I was going to run up that street. That was not a test. That was a temptation. What might God do to test us if he's teaching us not to lust? He might, if you are married, strip away some of the intimacy between you and your spouse to teach you to appreciate the wonderful gift of sexual relations God has given you within the beauty of your marriage. Sometimes God will take things away and it's very unpleasant. And we have to work through that test in order to get back that blessing that God wanted to teach us in the first place. See the difference? Temptation, very alluring. Test, oftentimes very unalluring, very unpleasant, very difficult. So God tests us to make us stronger. God tests us to bring out the best in us. And believe me, God's sacrifice your son test made Abraham's faith stronger. And it brought out the very best in him. Now, I'd like to share with you three important faith lessons that all of us need to internalize if we choose to follow Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord. If you choose to follow Him as Savior and Lord, He will start you off on that school of faith. And there will be some tests that come along the way. And these are three lessons you need to know if you're going to face those tests and pass them with flying colors. Number one, expect tests and trials from God because the Christian life is never easy. The Christian life is never easy. Raise your hand if you've been a Christian for more than ten years. Would you agree that Christian life is never easy? Okay? It's never easy. If someone came to you when you were thinking of accepting Christ and they told you, you need to become a Christian because living as a Christian is easy. If someone ever told you that, I hate to break it to you, but they lied. They lied to you. The Christian life is never easy. In large part, it's never easy because life is never easy. Regardless of whether you're a Christian or a Buddhist or an atheist, life is not easy, is it? Life isn't easy. At times, you will have that doctor tell you or a loved one or a friend, it's cancer. At times, you'll get that diagnosis with some disease you don't want. At times, you'll get that notice in the mail of an eviction. At times, you'll get that late notice from a credit card company at times you will be dealing with physical issues and emotional issues and spiritual issues because life here on earth is never easy. It's hard. Period. But I'm here to tell you, as hard as it is to live life here on earth, and as hard as it is to live life on earth as a Christian, it is by far, hands down, the best way to live. It is hard, but it's hands down the best way to live. But let me be honest with you. In some ways, living as a Christian is harder than living as an atheist. In some ways, it's harder. Following God's laws is not easy. Shoot, even trying to obey all ten commandments in one week is hard. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. Obeying God's commands is hard, right? Standing for Christ in a culture that in many ways is hostile to Christianity isn't easy. Walking by faith isn't easy. Loving our neighbors, especially loving that neighbor that drives us to our last nerve, that neighbor that drives us up the wall, that's not easy. We don't want to love that neighbor. Growing in our relationship with Christ isn't easy. Prioritizing church and sharing our faith and serving our community and putting God first in our finances, none of these things are easy, are they? But you know what? If you missed it the first time, let me say it again. Living for Jesus Christ, even though it is hard, is hands down the best way to live. It's the best way to live. Because there's some perks that come from following Jesus that you don't get elsewhere. There's some wonderful blessings to follow in Jesus. You know what? When you follow Jesus, He brings you peace that you don't get without Him. Because He brings you peace with God. And He brings you forgiveness. And He brings you grace and purpose, and hope, and comfort in our sorrows, and He brings you love, and He brings you joy. Should I continue? Don't mind if I do. He brings you a brand new family. He brings you a life-changing mission. He brings you eternity in paradise with a Savior who loves you more than life itself. Living for Jesus is hard. Oh, but it's hands down the best way to live. There's nothing that compares to the greatness of following Christ Jesus our Lord. Because living for Jesus brings us all those wonderful blessings, it's important for us to understand that when those tests and trials come, we have to understand why God does what He does. We don't necessarily find out the specifics, but in general, we can't forget that God is not about bringing us comfort. God is about building our character. As you follow Jesus Christ, never forget God is more concerned with your character than He is with your comfort. So at times He will send you trials. He will send you tests to prove that your faith is real. To make you stronger and to bring out the very best in you because life following Christ is so hard. So expect those tests. Expect those trials from God because the Christian life is never easy. Life lesson number two, faith lesson number two. Focus on promises, not explanations. Focus on promises, not explanations. Remember in Genesis 12, when God called Abraham to go to a place he would tell him about, he didn't explain where he was going, did he? And in Genesis 22, when he said, sacrifice your one and only son whom you love, he didn't explain why he wanted him to do that. So when it comes down to it, God oftentimes doesn't tell us where we're going. He doesn't oftentimes tell us why He wants us to do what He commands us to do. So let me ask you, if God didn't give Abraham a full explanation of what he was doing every time He asked him to do something, who do you think you are to think that God owes you a full explanation every time He asks you to do something? If God didn't give this great man of faith Abraham a full detailed explanation, who are we to think that God owes us a full detailed explanation? You see, God is the creator of the universe. He doesn't owe us anything. He's the creator of the universe. He doesn't owe you your salvation. He doesn't owe you a relationship with your creator God. He doesn't owe you the gift of heaven. These are all gifts. And He certainly doesn't owe you and me an explanation whenever He asks us to do something for Him. He doesn't owe us explanations. And so ultimately, you have to ask yourself, am I okay with this? Am I okay with this reality? God does not owe you an explanation when He asks you to do something. Ask yourself, am I okay with this? Can I follow Him anyway? Can I walk in faith anyway? even if God doesn't give me a detailed explanation of what He's doing and why He's doing it, in spite of the circumstance, in spite of the consequence, will you walk in faith anyway? Instead of getting so stressed out about God's explanations, instead of obsessing over His explanations, we need to focus our thoughts on God's promises. That's what Abraham did according to Hebrews 11. He was focused on God's promise. And God comes to him in Genesis 22. It says, I want you to go to some mountain out there in the region of Moriah. I'll tell you about it when you get there. And I want you to take out that knife. I want you to sacrifice your son who you love to me. And Abraham's thinking to himself, this doesn't make any sense. I don't understand it. God has told me several times that through Isaac, my son... I'm going to have descendants as numerous as the sand on the seashore and as numerous as the stars in the sky. And God is telling me that through my son, all these descendants are going to be born. And now God is telling me to, to murder my son. It doesn't make any sense. But well, what does Abraham do? Early the next morning, he gets up and he leaves anyway. And as he's walking to sacrifice his son on some unknown mountain, which, by the way, you know what that mountain ended up being? That Mount Moriah Mountain ends up being the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, where one day the temple would be built, where one day Jesus would go and clear out the money changers, and just a short distance from there would hang on the cross. That's the place God eventually called Abraham to go and make that sacrifice. But it didn't make any sense to Abraham, but he obeyed anyway. And he reasoned that somehow God must have in mind to raise my son Isaac from the dead once I sacrifice him. He's going to resurrect my son because God promised me that I'm going to have descendants as numerous as the stars, as numerous as the sand. And if God promised it, I can take it to the bank because I believe God. And even if my son is dead, he'll somehow cause that promise to come to pass because I believe in faith that God does not lie. And in a similar way, when we're going through those tests of God, they may not make sense, we may not understand the details, but we've got to hold on to the promises of God. We've got to hold on to the promises that God said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. God said to those who follow Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, greater is He who is in you than he who is in the world. As He gives us those tests, we have to remember in Romans twenty-eight, twenty-eight, He said, All things will work together for good for those that love God and are called according to His purpose. We have to remember God's promise that we can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. We can know that greater is He who is in us than he who is in the world. We can take to the bank that we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. And that's the tip of the iceberg when it comes to God's promises in Scripture. When God's tests come your way, focus on God's promises, not on explanations and faith lesson number three depend on God's provision depend on God's provision Warren Wearsby I think one of his best subjects in his commentaries is in regard to faith and one more quote from his Warren Wearsby says we have no right to expect the provision of God if we are not in the will of God in that short and sweet We have no right to expect the provision of God unless we are in the will of God. Remember that as followers of Christ, the Lord will always provide for your needs in the place of His assignment. To say it a little bit differently, if we are walking in faith and obeying His marching orders in faith, He will meet every one of your needs and you can count on it. So here's the thing. If you're wondering why your needs are not being met by God, it's one of two problems. Either, number one, It's not really a need, it's a want. God doesn't promise to meet your wants, just your needs. And the second issue may be this. Simply put, you're not where you're supposed to be. You're not where you're supposed to be. Because God promises that if you're walking in obedience to His commands, if you're walking in faith, doing what He called you to do, in the place where He called you to do it, He says, my God will supply all of your needs according to His glorious riches in Christ Jesus. And because that is a truth of Scripture, if you are doing what God has called you to do in the place He has called you to do it, you are not doing it alone. You're doing it with Jesus Christ, right? And God will supply all your needs according to His riches in Christ Jesus, who happens to be right there with you doing what you're doing. And so all you have to do is reach out next to you and take that need meeting ability that god has given to you because it's all in christ if you are where he's called you to be doing what he's called you to do in the place he's called you to do it he will meet every one of your needs and so as we go through this journey of faith as we're on this walk of faith we have to remember that we should expect tests from god because the christian life is not easy We should focus on God's promises not on explanations because He doesn't owe us explanations. And number three, we depend on God's provision because He will meet our needs as we're doing what He's called us to do in faith. Let's pray. Father, thank You. Thank You for never tempting us. Thank You, Father, for giving us these tests of faith Not to break us, but to make us stronger. To show us what we're made of in Christ. It is easy to say, oh, I believe that Jesus is the Christ. It's easy to say, I believe Jesus is the Son of God. It's easy to say, I I believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sins. But Lord, when our friends criticize those decisions and those convictions of faith, when the trials of life come, when the tests of life come, and Lord, we don't understand what You're doing and why You've asked us to do what You've asked us to do. We don't understand why You have us in Victorville. Lord, we don't understand why we have this job that we have, why our kids might be acting the way that they're acting. We don't understand this health diagnosis. When we go through those periods of confusion, Lord, and it is a time of testing, help us, Lord, to demonstrate that our faith is real. I pray that no one in this room would have their faith buckle during these tests that come our way. May we believe Your promises that You will somehow work things together for good. May we believe Your promise that You'll never leave us or forsake us. May we believe Your promise that You'll never allow us to have a a friend or the enemy come in and tempt us beyond what we can bear. Lord, may we hold on to the promise that one day everything will make sense and You will reward us as we followed You faithfully. Lord, thank You for this great example of Abraham. May we walk in faith like he walked in faith. Amen.